So classic Bloom filters use 1.44 log base two of one over, I believe it's a sigma bits of space per inserted key where sigma is the false positive rate of the Bloom filter, right? Mm. So the- Yeah, I understand. Did you say 1.2 or 1.3? Welcome to Working Code. And now your hosts, none of whom have ever seen a failing unit test, Adam, Ben, Carol, and Tim. Okay, here we go. It is show number 119. And on today's show, we are going to learn with you what we are talking about. That's right. We are doing another potluck. So none of us knows what the other people are going to talk about. We're going to just figure it out as we go. But as usual, we'll start with our triumphs and fails. And Carol's back. Hey. Welcome back, Carol. Hey. Uh, Thanks, we, didn't, we didn't know why you were gone last week. We, we only found out after we recorded that it was the bronchitis and your phone died. Yeah. And, yeah. Being so. sick sucks. Glad you're better. Glad Thanks. you're back. And yeah. So Ben, why don't we start with you? I'm going to go with a failure, which is just that at work lately, I've been feeling really burnt out. And I think I'm, I, I've been reflecting on it and trying to get at the root of what it is. Because I feel like I've talked about this on the podcast before where my day is packed. Usually, like I have everything that I need to do on my on my Jira board and it's just attacking the day and trying to fit as much into the nooks and crannies of, of the of, of time as possible. and. I've, I've been finding lately myself just staring at the screen or I'll, I'll just like, I just like left an hour early today. Which mm. isn't like you, right? Not like me at all. I yeah. just like, I had nothing left in the tank. And I think if I do like a, like a five wise get into the bottom, I feel like I'm not doing consumer facing work. I'm doing internal platform work. I'm doing the object scanning, looking for, unused objects in S3. And these are all technically interesting problems, but I think I just got so much energy from working for customers and with customers to solve problems that not having that in my life right now is very, it's very draining for me. It's, I don't know. I just like, I'm, I'm having trouble finding the, the inspiration from doing just behind the scenes work. Yeah, I never enjoyed when I felt like I was just a code monkey, like just putting code out the door, right? Like I didn't want to just be writing. Like I like interacting with people more than anything. So there's no stimulation for me if all I'm doing is just writing code and pushing it out and I don't get any feedback on the process or how it impacted anyone. I felt yeah. like it was pointless. It, it, yeah, exactly. It's tough. Well, it's tough. I mean, Ben, don't you know corporations are people too? <laughs> according to the supreme doing court work that helps the you're, you're doing work that helps the company that's true i'll bring that with me tomorrow when i start work <laughs> <laughs> make yourself a post-it note it's weird though so you know you know i'm straddling the the two different systems at work the legacy system and the modern system and i'm and i've been told more or less not to do anything on the legacy system other than this data cleanup stuff that we're working on and it's it's like I, I'm trying so hard to be good, actually, and, and and not color outside the lines right now. But I'm, I'm just itchy. I'm just itching to build something for somebody. I don't know. Eventually, I guess I'll be on the the new platform and I'll be able to build for our customers. Then once I finish this data deletion stuff, I just need to figure out how to get the data deletion stuff done faster. There's just there's just a lot of stuff there. But uh, I was gonna say, do you have a, a rough idea back of the napkin math like? Uh, it, it's it's unclear 
it's unclear. There's a because we've, we've talked about this before. A lot of this is scanning over S3, and there's there's really not that many shortcuts you can take because you literally have to list out you know millions or billions of objects. So mm-hmm. what letter are you on now? Well, so yeah, that one folder that has a ridiculous amount of stuff in it, it I think it should cross over into nine tonight. So I'm more than halfway through the hex alphabet. There you go. Okay, yeah, yeah. It's zero through nine, then A through F. Yeah. So that's I was me. gonna say, is it letters or numbers first? But yeah, yeah. Then it all came back to me. Carol, what about you? What do you got going on? I'm going to call it a triumph. It's probably a failure, but I'm going to call it a triumph. <laughs> For the past month, no, no, no poo poo. Sorry, beep, right? <laughs> quack. <laughs> no quacks. Every night at 618, our internet goes out. Every night. And it's very frustrating. And we call customer support. Yeah, it is. It's 618, to which they like to tell us we probably have loose cables. So they've sent two technicians out. They've even came out and reburied our cables because clearly that causes it to go out at 618. Like new Mm -hmm. hardware, new everything. So we set on hold, set on hold. I've even hit up Twitter now and I post every day to the same thread like, oh, it's out again. Oh, it's out again. So I filed a complaint with the FCC and they responded yesterday that they've served my ISP with the complaint and they have 30 days to respond, like with written information on how the resolution's being handled and stuff. So hopefully they'll reach out and get it fixed. So I feel good that I went a step further and was like, I'm going to ask the government for help here because every day and you telling me I need to like tighten my cables is BS because my cables are just fine. (laughs) Wow. Oh gosh. Do you have other options? No, that's the other thing. And I don't want to tell him that because my husband gets on the phone. He's like, we're looking for another provider. I'm like, we can't get another provider here. (laughs) Starlink or yeah. Starlink isn't available. All we can do is get a hotspot through like T-Mobile. And it's mm-hmm. like has the worst coverage ever. And it gives mm-hmm. you a warning that in the afternoon, you may not have connectivity at all. Right so. Around 618? Yeah, probably <laughs> around 618. Yeah, yeah. So I'm calling it a triumph that I went a step further and, you know, I'm hopefully going to get it resolved. But who knows? ISPs suck. They just mm-hmm. have like, you have no say in anything when it comes to who provides service to your house for things like power or water. You just have to go with who's there, and that includes internet. So, ugh, fun stuff. You know, I just want to say, though, between you getting your rights defended as a consumer and then the other week you getting a lawyer to help defend your rights as an employee, <laughs> yeah. I feel like you uphold your own rights more in the last <laughs> month than I've done in my entire life. And Gosh, I'm, I- I'm very impressed. I have had to stand up for myself over the past two months a lot. Well, month and a half. So, you know, since the end of January, I've had to get some people to back me saying that I have rights and I'm going to fight for them because, well, I've earned them. And so has everyone before me. So, yeah. Thanks, that's just, Yeah, that's such a great it. instinct. I feel like my instinct is just to like suck it up and complain to people. Yeah. <laughs> but, but like you actually do something about it. It's great. I'm a, I'm a fighter. I'm definitely a fighter at that's heart. Awesome. So, yeah. But yeah, that's me. I will not be screwed over. Not again. <laughs> <laughs> what about you, Sam? What you got? Well, I'm glad to say things, I'm going with the triumph, things are back to normal. This week has been normal. You know, I will never again, and if I do ever complain, hold me to this. I, like about three weeks ago, I was like, you know, things have been really quiet. 
<laughs> things have been so quiet. And then after two weeks of absolute hell, if it, things are back to being quiet, I'm like, okay, don't, 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 don't ever say this yeah. is boring. <laughs> Cause I don't want to go. I mean, those last, those last two weeks, man, it's like, I, I barely saw my family. Although I work from home, I didn't take dinner with anybody. I don't, I think five days I didn't shower, but you know, things are, <laughs> things are, things are back to normal. I was working from 6 a.m. to about 11 p.m. every night. Oh my gosh. And I didn't eat. I've lost about five pounds, which is like, that's oh the only positive side, which I've since gained back. But yeah, so I'm, I'm glad things are back to normal. And then I'll say the other thing, my son, Max, he's been, you know, he comes home every day from college and talks about what he's learning and is, he's taking discrete mathematics. And I have nice. to say, I'm, I'm a bit envious of his CS classes he's taking because he's like telling me, oh, yeah, so we, I had a, wrote a program that was, you know, they'd give him these exercises and he created this while loop and it was like, it worked, but it was like a lot of code and it was kind of slow. And he's like, then discrete mathematics, we talk about Euclidean algorithms. And then I refactored my program and now it's like it converted oh. it down to like, you know, <laughs> 10 lines of code from like 70 lines of code and it runs so much faster and He's like, oh, and I can count on binary on my fingers and I can convert them to hex. And I'm like, wow. Yeah, I didn't I didn't go the traditional route. I didn't I, you know, I didn't learn. I didn't take a, a, a traditional CS class. So I'm just a bit jealous, a bit jealous of my son that he's he's taken to it well. And he's like, gets super excited. He comes in from when he comes home from college and then he'll be like, tell me what he learned today. And it's like, he just gets really in depth and I'm sitting here working <laughs> and typing <laughs> and he's like going on and on. I'm like, I don't understand like 20% of what he said. <laughs> Your son sounds like me. I really enjoyed the computer science parts of college. Oh yeah. He loves the mathematics. I was, I'm not good at math. I didn't like math. I don't understand math, but he really, he gets it. So I'm super proud of him. So so part of all of this has been going on with me. I'm like, should I go back to school? Like how much would going back mm -hmm. to school mean for me right now? Because I think I would love learning it the correct way, knowing that I know how to do it, right? So I would be able to take what I've learned and apply like the actual CS knowledge on top of what I know. And it makes me kind of want to go back and take some classes just because yeah. I've been doing this and let's see how they pair together. Like once you have the knowledge of just learning and like your everyday using it versus getting some education with it. Yeah, that yeah. sounds like it could be a lot of fun. Yeah. yeah. He's not actually even take, ha hasn't really even taken programming classes yet. And, and, but he, what he tends to do, and he did this in high school, like with statistics and stuff, they give him computers to work on. So if he had to do like a statistics problem, he would just write a JavaScript uh, program to, to like do the calculations for him. And so whenever he had, and they let him use the computer for the test. So you do the, pro, he would just pop in the numbers, that they give him, spit it out. And he'd be done with his test in like 10 minutes. And everyone else has like an hour to work on it because he nice. wrote all these little programs. So, and that's what he's kind of doing with his discrete mathematics classes. He's taking what he's learning in math and going, okay, let me write a program to simulate this. And that's so cool. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. So super proud of him. He'd make a good educator. Yeah, but you don't make money. True, true. <laughs> Maybe like a side hustle for him would be teaching because, yeah, you yeah. know, the, the know. learning's good for him. West Boss seems to be doing okay for himself. That's true. Yeah, yeah. if you're doing like, yeah, that kind of stuff. My my daughter, she 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 went to, her, with her English class, they went last, last week and spoke to, they went to like the elementary school and spoke to like the lower grades, the little kids, and read to them. 
and she loved it. She Aww. had such a good, just had <laughs> such a good time talking to the, reading to the kids. And I'm like, she's like, maybe I could be a teacher. I'm like, maybe. <laughs> Do you like any money? Doing charity? <laughs> <laughs> yep. So that's me. How about you, Adam? Oh, I have a fail, which is that this TDD book is still on my desk. Because this is a triumph. I finished the TDD book. Huh. <laughs> did you finish? I did. I finished it. Nice. I, wasn't sure. I read it. Joking. Is that fail fake out? That's right. No, it, it's here because I wanted to mention it before I go over and put it on the bookshelf. So yes, and the reason that I read it today, I read it from you know where I had left off two years ago to the end of the book today. And the reason that I read it today was that I took today off of work. That's you know, part of how this is also a triumph. I had a particularly long and rough day yesterday, which I will talk about in a second. And so I took today off and just like for recovery, right? Not so much like a, a comp time, but just like I am a zombie after yesterday and I, I cannot function another day. So I'm going to take the day off and I slept in and I made myself nice. a nice big breakfast and I caught up on some important emails in my personal life that I had to get done. And, and yeah, just like, you know, little things. And I, you know, I did things, a couple of things around the house and I took a nap in the afternoon and I went out to lunch with my friend Chuck and I read this book. The reason that I had such a long day yesterday is because it was one of our customers giving day. And so, you know, they, they do a bunch of email through us and they don't have a particularly nuanced approach to email. Their approach is usually just like, let's send as many emails as we possibly can and hope that some people open them and that they are inspired enough to give us money. And as much as I don't like it, it actually worked. Last I checked, they had made about $3 million from their email campaign. Nice. I'm going to mass email everybody I know. <laughs> For real. <laughs> yeah, it was a difficult day, right? So, you know, it, we have this system built to send a lot of emails as fast as we possibly can. And that's, that's fine. It does reasonably well most of the time. But where it tends to get bogged down and, and struggle is when, okay, like here's half a million emails, please go, right? Like it's a lot of work to like prepare half a million emails to, to send because you've got to pre-render them all and get it all ready so that it can, at the moment of send, you can send them all as fast as possible. And oh, the, the database queries. You pre-render them? Like you don't render them yeah. as you're sending them? That's right. Oh, fascinating. So, so that we can, you know, and when you're only sending to 20,000 people, that makes a lot of sense because you can send 20,000 emails really quick and you can do that in a couple of minutes. We could actually do it a lot faster, but we are being rate limited by Mailgun. Right. And so we have to have a whole little thing that, that we keep track of how many emails we send per calendar minute is what we call it, right? Like mm. a minute on the, the clock. And, and if we're getting close to... You know, we're like, we're using math, right? We're actually doing like standard deviation. Like how close are we going to come if we try to process another batch this minute? And if it's too high, then we're like, okay, well, we'll, we'll just go to sleep until the next minute sort of thing. Does, does Mailgun, are you sitting one at a time or do you, can you like send a batch, like a big file of them? They do have what effectively is like a mail merge sort of thing where you can mm -hmm. say, okay, here's the template, here's the recipient list, and here's like a, a set of data for, you know, for their particular type of mail tokens, here's the values I want you to fill in for the those tokens per per user, right? So Tim gets, you know, hi Tim, and Carol gets hi Carol, and Ben gets hi Ben. If you if you set the first name token, um, they do have. I'm I'm closing my eyes because you guys waving at me is <laughs> distracting. They do have a feature like that, and we I don't know if we didn't know about it or they introduced it after we had like put in a bunch of work to build our own pre rendering system. Or maybe it only became available to us at a certain 
pricing tier that we later opted into or something like that. I don't know. But for whatever reason, we do it ourselves. That sounds um, like tech debt to me. <laughs> <laughs> it's a, it's an interesting topic. Yeah, I, 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 I don't uh, recall only, all of the history. but only only reason I ask is I know SendGrid, which is what we use, they have a way you can do, rather than sending one mail at a time, you can just send a huge batch of them, right? And it's just a JSON payload. And we actually rend- we render the HTML and put it in the body. They have like things where mail merge where they can do that, but it's like mm-hmm. we're using Cold Fusion to do it. So we just kind of create that JSON itself mm-hmm. and then send it to them. And you can send. Uh, we've never done millions, but you can send a lot. <laughs> so yeah, I don't know. That's yeah, I mean, we're we are rate limiting ourselves to a target of about forty five hundred a minute, and I think that the actual might be five thousand a minute, something like that. So that, you know, if we go a little bit over, it's not that big of a deal. And that tends to be fine, right? So then 4,500 a minute, I don't know what the math is, but, you know, we can get out a large audience in a half an hour. So we figure that's fast enough. Anyway, so it was giving day and they sent a buttload of email. And the first one, because, you know, they're trying to maximize the the calendar day, the first one got sent at like 12.001, right? Midnight 01 on Tuesday night going into Wednesday. And so I stayed up and and made sure that that pre-render and everything worked good. And then I made sure, and it did struggle because that was one of those giant, you know, let's send to half a million people ones. And so I, you know, I had to kind of help that through its render process. And then I stayed up to midnight to just make sure that it went and we were getting off on the right foot for this giving day. And and then I went to bed and I had set myself an alarm for 3.55, wake up and be ready. F- yeah. 3.55 a.m. So three hours and 55 minutes after I went to bed, I got up and you know, that was when the next big render was going to start. And so I had to get up and just watch that one, make sure. And I, again, it needed help because it was another giant one. And then you know, a couple here and there, a couple of giant ones throughout the day interspersed with a, a couple of smaller audiences between them. And I had to you know just kind of babysit this thing and help it throughout the day. And so you know, I got up at 3.55 after having gone to bed at midnight-ish and I was up until about 9.30 PM? Yeah. So it, it was a, long a very day. long day. Yeah. And, and and I'm not 25 anymore. That's a, that takes a, a toll on me. You need your sleep. Um, and and I'm, you know, I'm also down on the Mountain Dew, right? So I used to just like, <laughs> that would be a 12 Mountain Dew day for me before. And I still managed to do it with just my usual two plus one. I had a, I allowed myself a third. Down on um, the Mountain Dew sounds like it should be a rage against the machines. Right? <laughs> <laughs> down on the Mountain Dew! <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. I'm not a youth anymore, so I wouldn't know those things. Anyway, so I was exhausted. I took today off to recover. I read my book and did a whole bunch of other, uh, you know, like personal betterment things. No, I'm happy about that. It was a good day and I feel restored because of it. You know, you need those mental wellness days, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. My my daughter yesterday, I, I didn't even realize she like, because I work in the in my office, and then their little computer room is next door. I went and kissed her on the forehead yesterday at four p.m. I'm like, "How is school?" She's like, "I slept all day." I'm like, "What?" <laughs> I didn't realize. My, my, my wife told me that you know, she's like, "Lily is just shot. She just can't handle." But she didn't tell me she stayed home, so she slept like seventeen hours. Dang. Oh man! It took it just took a mental health day, and then she went to school today. And they're like, "Where were you? Were you sick?" She's like, "No, my parents let me take a mental health day," and they're like. They did what? <laughs> the the kids are like blown away. Like, yeah, we get we get to take at least you know one mental health day per semester. So That's she took cool. hers. 
she was just she was just broken. She's my wife's like she's just crying. She like drenched oh, me in tears. No. Like I I can't go. I just can't handle. I just I just can't. So she she stayed home and now she's right as rain. So it's good you guys raise your kids in a, an environment where it's okay to have mental health days. It really yeah. is because a lot of parents shut that down. So to be like, hey, it's okay that you're having emotions and you need to yeah. express that. And if you need to take a day off from life, take a day off from life and stay in the bed. That's okay. Uh, Tomorrow yeah. will come around that you can try again. Yep. It, it's either that they're going to pretend they're sick and then yeah. you're going to be suspicious. So it's like, yeah, just mm-hmm. be honest. Yeah. I just can't. I just can't mentally cope today. So <laughs> I'm staying job. home. I'm staying in bed. What I was Good parenting. A, when I was Thanks. a kid, I desperately wanted to stay home from work from school one day, and I was mm-hmm. pretending to be sick. And my mom gave me a thermometer, like a digital <laughs> thermometer. Put it next to the light bulb. And I put it next to the light bulb, and it completely <laughs> <Yep>. melted. <laughs> oh, I was like, terrible. "Oh, that's a high fever. I should definitely mm-hmm. not go to school." <laughs> I I did the old light bulb trick so many times. Just there's just days like, like I can't handle. But my mom was like, oh, "Take your temperature, like, light bulb." It's like, how how are you? A hundred and seven degrees. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I guess that brings us to our topic, our, our four topics for the day. Who wants yeah. to go first? I can kick us off if you want. Sure. So I have hit the the point where it is really scary being alone, making decisions. I've went from being on a team where I have a lot of people supporting me on my ideas. I have people to constantly talk to and sitting at home going, oh, geez, like what projects do I pick up? Like which routes do I go? This impacts my life and everyone around me because if it's too stressful, everyone in my house is going to be impacted. If I don't charge enough money, then I'm going to be mad at myself for not doing the math right. And it is very scary when you're talking about consulting and making all the decisions on your own, because not only are you making the decisions about what you pick up, you're also contributing to people's tech that you don't really know. And you're having to learn their infrastructure. You're having to learn, you know, what they do day in, day out. And I feel a level of commitment with everything I write. And I feel like any advice I give should be very solid. So then I second guess myself on, is that right? Like, what would I say if I were sitting in an office with like my old team, with people who I trust to be honest with me? And like, would I be saying the same things or would I be saying it and then looking at them going, hey, like, are they like responding to this positively or negatively? Because maybe I need to change what I'm thinking. And now it's just kind of like all on my shoulders and it's mm-hmm. very very scary you guys <laughs> Yo, for real <laughs> i didn't kind of like, I'm, I'm hitting things i didn't know i was gonna like be feeling right but it, it is a little scary when you're talking about the doing it alone thing and you know having a lot of people rely on you mm. so i guess i have a, a piece of advice for you which is start small you know oh, yeah. uh, small project and that way you know if it gives you a taste of, you know, making that money and you'll figure out like, is that enough? Right. And Mm -hmm. then you can go for the next project. Okay. Well, you know, I learned from the last project that I only charge you half of what I actually need to make. So this one's going to cost more. And Mm -hmm. there's a whole thing I didn't even know about till finally I got an accountant to kind of work with me is that there's a whole tax I didn't even realize I had to deal with, right? Not only do I have to pay tax here where I physically write the code because I'm in Georgia, I have to deal with Washington regulation a tad bit too because I'm a resident of Washington because we're military. So in a few months, all of my Georgia knowledge has to go 
picked up like in Arizona because that's where we're going to be at. And then I also have to handle tax in wherever the company is established mm-hmm. at that I'm what? working for. So I ultimately tax. circle in like four taxes. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. not fun. So I'm like, okay, it's settled. I will not handle this. Someone else is going to be responsible yeah. for mm-hmm. this part of my life because I don't even know what happens in Pennsylvania. So how am I supposed to handle any taxes there? Yep. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And military just adds like a layer of complexity to everything we do now. So, yeah. So, so you have to deal with that, even though you're not you're not in the military. I'm not in the military. I'm a resident of Washington, so I'm taxed under Washington because of the residency. DC. No, the state of Washington. But because I physically am residing in Georgia and I am doing the work in the state of Georgia, there are like B&O taxes that I'm responsible for since I'm self-employed here. Gotcha. But yeah, I don't get taxed so who's Georgia in, who's taxes. In, so who's in Washington state? Me and my the husband. Client? No, me and my husband. That's that's our state of residency. Like that's where he's military, based out of or something? Yeah, so yeah. when you're in the military, you have a state of residency, and that's where you pay your individual taxes out of. And that's who protects you against unemployment. All of that uh, stuff is Washington, which is great because Washington doesn't have income tax. But what you. they have is higher tax rates on services to cover that. So then I have to deal with their services as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cool. So again, cool. accounting. Nobody yeah. take any of that for advice. Get an accountant <laughs> because that's how I figured it out. <laughs> yeah, that's the real advice. Yeah, get for an sure. accountant. And a they're very busy right now because it's tax season. <laughs> mm-hmm. But there is, there is definitely a trade-off to going out on your own. I mean, there, there are definitely a lot of people, I probably count myself among them, who, like, I just want to go in and do my work and I don't want to have to think about not just the tax stuff, but like, where's the work coming from and who's, you know, putting in requests for like bids for work and all that kind of stuff. And that's a lot. It's, it is yeah. very scary. It's huge. And I didn't realize how many people trust me until I started down this <laughs> venture because I have friends reaching out to me going, we're ready to quit working and just work for you. So let us know like when you're mm. ready to go bigger than what you're doing, right? So when you have That's more awesome. work than what you're capable of, we will gladly sign on with you at any point. And I'm wow. like, okay, I don't trust myself right now to make decisions. So I'm not hold, about hold, to impact hold, someone let, else's let, life. Let me, get on my own, let me get on my own feet here <laughs> yeah. first, right? But it is good to like know that people reach out to you for a doing work. Like, you know, I've talked to, I don't know, can I say this, Adam? Do you mind like if I say this? Like I've talked to Adam a little bit about like the possibility of consulting with them. Several of my friends have reached out and been like, hey, our company wants to talk to you because we mentioned that you were looking for contracting or consulting work. So lots of people trust what I do as far as how good I am. But then to have people be like, I trust you with my family's life, you know, to provide for us is a whole nother <laughs> yeah, thing. Yeah. So I'm like, okay, I have to be alone first and figure out how to stand on my own two feet and make this work before I pick up anyone else. But it is good to know that I have shown people that I'm capable of doing it. So mm-hmm. it gives me a little like, okay, I can be okay. Maybe, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> well, I mean, if nothing else, you know, if you do end up in a spot where you have more work to do than you can physically get done yourself, you know, those people would probably be happy to subcontract for you. Yeah. You yep. know, just on like a, a project by project basis. Yeah. Like weekend work and stuff. Yep. So it's definitely scary, but I'm stepping through it day by day. It, it is great. When I say alone, I'm not alone. Obviously, I have my husband who's constantly reminding me that 
we're okay and that I should keep going forward with this and I shouldn't be taking a permanent job and I should just, you know, go through this and enjoy it and figure it out. So it's good to have his support. Cool. I remember when I was in school years and years and years ago, one of the guys in my class, it was senior year, and we were all talking about, you know, what do you have? Does anybody have plans for after graduation? And this one guy was like, yeah, I'll probably just do, you know, a bunch of consulting. And I was like, consulting? You literally know nothing and have zero experience. <laughs> <laughs> like, what could you possibly consult about? I just love people's enthusiasm, man, or confidence. <laughs> people's confidence just is like amazing. Yeah. You don't know what you don't know. <laughs> yeah. Isn't that a song in Hamilton? No. I don't think so. Okay. I don't know. But okay, never you mind. You write one. It <laughs> doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, are we ready to move on to the next one then? Yeah. Let's do it. Okay. Who wants to go next? I'll go. All so right. I was reading an article the other day that popped up about, I think it was from Stack Overflow, kind of their summary email for, it was talking about stop saying technical, technical debt. And I think, I think Ben kind of brought this up. Is it technical debt or is it just bad code that you didn't know about at the time? Right. And, and it, it kind of, it, it kind of drove that home a bit. Right. So, I mean, it, one of the subheadings is tech debt is just more than just bad code. You know, we don't have to read the article, but I think that the principle of it is, is that, you know, when you talk about technical debt in the, in the actual technical term that Martin Fowler talked about, this is like, where you make a decision that you're you're not necessarily going to deal with that problem right now the best way, and that's a decision, right? And you hold yourself accountable, like with debt, right? You don't you just don't just like throw something on a credit card and then go, oh, I'm not going to worry about it ever until it's a problem because that's really bad, right? You you yeah. always have a statement coming every month that tells you just how much debt you have, and eventually you have to rectify that debt. There's there's going to be a, a, a coming due of that debt. If you write bad code, you don't really know that that's debt, right? It's, it's not on your statement until it's a problem. I, I saw, this is just because you were kind of trying to struggle for words there. I saw somebody recently refer to it as retirement of technical debt. Like you you accept the technical debt as a choice. Mm -hmm. And then when you go back and you pay it back, he referred to it as retirement of technical debt. And, and I kind of like yeah. that. I don't I, get I, it. I think I, I think I ran into that today. So I ran into an issue today, and this was a decision that I made. So I have a voice recognition kind of system thing where you can call and make a payment on, on an insurance policy. And the only customers that we had, they only had like, so in, in our system, you have keys, you have payment keys. And the keys determine what bank account, the whenever the money is received from the consumer, where that money is deposited. And all of our customers at the time, they only had one account. So they only had one set of keys. So there's really, at the time, no reason for me to try to look up what the key should be because no one had multiple keys. So I just kind of hard, hard coded, but in configuration files, I put their keys. And so whenever a payment was made, those were the keys that were sent. Well, unbeknownst to me, so, you know, just because of lack of communication, one of our customers signed another they had another bank account that stuff needed to go into so they had another set of keys but no one told me and so <laughs> today i got an email from the customer going hey i just noticed that you know stuff from because they represent multiple insurance companies stuff from insurance company a 
is going into this bank account, which is good. But insurance company B is going also going in here, which is bad. I'm like, <laughs> oh. So that was technical. That was a decision I had made. Now the debt has come due. Like, so yeah. now I need to I need to write some code that basically goes and looks up and says, all right, what should it be? And I did that. It it took a couple hours. I got it pushed out today. And, and it worked fine. I didn't write bad code. It's just I made a decision like, look, none of our customers that are using this system have more than one set of keys. So I'm not going to prematurely optimize and write it. The bad thing is I wasn't told in advance that, you know, this had happened. This happened back in we December. We usually aren't, by the way. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> no. yeah, for sure. Yeah. So I see that as technical debt because I, I that was a decision I had made. I was like, when we come to that point, when someone says, hey, we need to add another set of keys to this customer, I'll, I'll go refactor and it'll work. But fortunately, communication broke down. But, you know, writing just bad code is not technical debt. That's just well cleaning cleaning stuff up. I think I disagree with you just a little bit, right? So yeah, yeah. I think an, an accretion of bad code can become technical debt. In, in a way that it is weighing you down. Mm-hmm. And and I guess, honestly, this kind of ties back into what that article was referring to or, or sort of where that article headed, which was, you know, how do you present technical debt as something that is valuable for your team to work on to the business so that they will give you the time to work on it, right? Because if you just go and say like, look, we have you some can't. technical It'll debt. It'll never happen. Yeah. It, yeah. We, we want to make a whole bunch of changes to the code that will have zero effect on how the program <laughs> runs. And we still want to get paid for this six weeks that we're going to do this. Yeah. And they're going to be like, no. So the article, I really love the way it framed it, is called, they could say, call it maintenance load, right? So uh, this technical debt is slowing you down, right? It, you have to do things in more than one place, or you have to run a bunch of manual tests because things aren't well tested or, or you know, whatever it is that's going on because of this technical debt. They say, refer to it as maintenance load. So if it's, if you are at a 50% maintenance load, then a six week project will take you 12 weeks to complete because you're spending 50% of your time dealing with the fact that you have these problems in the code. And so mm-hmm. by framing it that way, you're showing the business that if they invest in reducing maintenance load, then they are investing in future projects moving more quickly. And, and, and it also gives them something very concrete, like, I don't know, it gives them something that, that they can understand as a non-technical person, right? Like there are things about the way that this exists that need to be better and, and it's slowing us down. And so, yeah. Here's something that I've been grappling with. So I don't know if you know the, the name Eric Elliott. He's, he's fairly well known, I think, in the JavaScript world. He's an author. I believe he teaches courses on JavaScript. And he, he's a proponent of this primary key library for databases called QID, which essentially is a, a variation on UUIDs, universally unique identifiers. And he, he lays out in a very well-crafted argument why you should be using UUIDs as your database keys because they don't leak any information about when they're created. They don't leak any information about the order. They can be generated outside of the database from different systems. You can have all this horizontal scalability that you wouldn't have with something like an auto-incrementing value. Storage is no longer an issue really with databases. Performance around clustered primary keys is like no longer a performance concern apparently. And and he can lay this argument out entirely and I'm listening to it. I'm like, I agree 100% with everything you say. And on my next project, 
I will use an auto incrementing integer <laughs> because like that's just <laughs> literally how my brain thinks. And yep. I don't know if that's technical debt or if is it, is it just me saying I don't have to deal with horizontal scalability. I'm not dealing with secure information. Uh, like if, if it leaks the order in which records are created, like that just doesn't matter for the type of application I'm building. Am I just being naive and stuck in my ways or am I just making some non-articulated calculated decision about how I enjoy building applications or am I just baking in technical debt that I'm going to have to pay for eventually? I don't, I don't know. I don't know what the answer is. I don't know what the answer is either, but I'll tell you what I do. So I always create tables with an auto incrementing ID only because the tools that I use whenever I'm like doing like, you know, ad hoc queries and, you know, in a, in a SQL tool, they need that in order to deal with the data when I'm doing like fixing stuff. But in the code, I always use a, a, a GUID or a, a UUID. And that the code itself uses that. It so never uses the primary key. Gotcha. You. So you're saying that your your record has both an incremented integer, but then also a separate column for yeah. a, a mm. more complex value. Weird. Yeah. So and, and the the biggest reason for that is because yeah, like you said, if that UUID is exposed, there's no way you can just go in there and go, you know, ID plus equals and right, plus right. one, right? Right. Yeah. And that's, I mean, because that's one of the OWASP top 10 kind of things. Yeah. Uh, that's, you know, that's the, one of the biggest, biggest ones. So, yeah. So the code itself never uses the primary key. The only thing the primary key is for is like when I need to go and like correct some data manually and my just, you know, it's just, it's just my tool. It has to use, you know, I use Aqua Data to update stuff. And whenever I'm doing some ad hoc updates, it needs a primary key. And that's, so I'm like, okay, I'll, I'll create that for you. But my code only uses the, the UID. So I disagree. <laughs> um, Giant, hey, that's so, why I do potlucks. Yeah, so, I mean, I, I think everything that you guys have said is true and, and correct, and, and that's fine and great. Here's what we do and why we do it. We, similar to Tim, have a numeric auto-incrementing primary key and a separate GUID column and when we have something that is user facing, where that GUID would be visible in the URL or whatever, that's, that's when we use the GUID over the ID mm -hmm. for all the reasons that you have said. However, the linking together of rows via like foreign keys, we use, mm -hmm. we do that with the primary key, the, the numeric. It is my understanding that indexes faster. on numerics will be faster than indexes on a 36 character wide string column. Well, and, that, and that's where I get into trouble too. And trouble is not the right word, but that's where I feel like I don't have a leg to stand on because Hill or other people will say something very technical about databases. Like my understanding used to be that if you, as a database, is inserting new rows, if the primary key is in, in incrementing like mono monotomically incrementing value that they get put literally on disk next to each other and the and mm. the database doesn't have to move things around in memory and that not doing that would be slow because you'd have to do a lot of disk seeking in order to find like the right place to put it in the clustered index but mm -hmm. then someone will say something like oh well on solid state drives that just doesn't that's not a thing anymore it doesn't matter and i'm yeah. like is it not though because i feel like <laughs> how do we know i don't know enough it's it's like when people say oh with http2 you no longer have to bundle files cuz we can just like push all this junk in your face at the same time <laughs> and and but then like you know 2 years later you hear you'll hear people say like 
oh, well, that wasn't really true. And HTTP2 like didn't really give us a lot of the advantages we thought that we we're going to have, but HTTP3 will be the best. I'm like, how do I know that we're not going to say the same exact thing about random mm-hmm. insertion of data in a clustered index? Like maybe that's just not working as fast. I don't know. But like, I, I'm not technical in that sense. So I don't know. So it's, it's hard for me to push at, back at, against some of that stuff. At the end of the day, if, if my queries are coming back with, you know, milliseconds, like low milliseconds, I don't care. Yeah. Honestly, I honestly don't care. Yeah, I hear you. Yeah. Yeah. So we, I mean, we have a GUID column, we put an index on it and, and that's what we show to people when we need to show them an ID, but we still use the, the numerics internally. Yeah. No, I, I get that. That, I, that would be my preferred way, but just stuff happens. So, yeah. <laughs> so was that technical debt? I don't know. But uh, that's just the way it happened. That that probably wasn't technical debt. That was probably just like, hey, I'm going to use this UUID to join things. And okay, it doesn't didn't run slow, so good enough. Uh, cool. But anyway, stop calling it technical debt unless it actually is. That, that's that's what <laughs> I got from that article. Well, we will put the link to that article in the show notes for sure. That was a really good read. At work, it there's always conversations about who should be working on technical debt. We have this. Most of the teams at work have some sort of an on-call rotation where there's, in theory, someone who's getting paged, and in theory, that person should probably also be fielding more of the pull request reviews and like more of the interrupt-driven work and dealing with support. Like they're kind of they're on crap duty for the week, kind of a thing. And some people have have put together a theory that that, that person should also be the one actively working on technical debt. But I, I think it's it's the same as like trying to get the business to buy into technical debt. Like it's just it's it's isolating it too much as a thing versus yeah. something that everyone should be working on all the time to some degree. Plus, I mean, who who has like the central repository of what is considered yeah, yeah. that? Right. I mean, I don't know of any. I mean, we don't have that unless it's a a, a project that I've worked on pretty much exclusively. I know where the bodies are buried, but it's like when you got a, a team of people, it's like pretty much everyone's going to have a different idea of what is it that needs to be refactored. I've had people join a project that I was on that start refactoring stuff. Like, oh, we need to just take this out of a out of a config file and put it in a database. I'm like, no, 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 no. Please, please, please don't do that. Don't do that. <laughs> why are please you doing don't cost that? Us more technical debt. <laughs> yeah. Why? Why are you doing that? It's working fine where the way it is. That was another really good point in the article. Was that like too often, or it's too easy? and too common for people to just be like, I don't like this code. I wouldn't yeah. have written it this way. Yeah. So I'm calling it technical debt. That's not technical yeah, it's just debt. changing stuff. Yeah. It's just changing stuff. Yeah. Yeah. To be fair, cool. sometimes that is technical debt. <laughs> <laughs> but sometimes it is not. Correct. All right. Ben, do you want to go next? Yeah, sure. I, I'm calling this one common sense is apparently subjective. <laughs> and that's it's snarky. But I I started off my day thrown out a couple of what I thought were very common sense things. And I got, I felt like a hard pushback against both of them, which I was not expecting in any way whatsoever. So the two things were one, I had, I had put in our main engineering channel, kind of a public service announcement. Say it again. War is bad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, I'm sitting here thinking like, what could, well, yeah. Yeah, what is, be- what could you say that's like more universally accepted? <laughs> So the first thing I wrote today in the main engineering channel was, hey, when people are doing pull requests and we use GitHub at work, so, you know, they go to GitHub to review someone's code. I said, when you're done reviewing code, just 
ping the person whose code it is and let them know that you're done reviewing it. And I I thought why? that was just like, why? So that someone will why? know that their code's been reviewed and they can Did, go do something about it. Do you not get so, emails that are like, hey, so, it's done reviewing? That was the pushback. It's like everyone was, a bunch of people were like, oh, well, this is a tooling problem and and we need to set up email filters or we should have some sort of Slack integration where yep. when you get mentioned and you get a note in this special Slack channel that your PR is ready. And I, I, I was like, to me, all of that sounds like a lot of work. And what doesn't sound like any work at all is saying, hey, Carol, PR is good to go. And I just, I was blown away at how many people wanted to use technology to solve what I thought was a people problem, not a technology problem. And I, I am a fan of the technology solution because the last thing I want to be doing is writing, like be writing more code and you ping me to tell me my other code's ready. I'm like, I'll check at the end of the day. So you don't have to tell me now. Like, so I'll check later. I don't want to know right now. I'm busy. <laughs> The, it, it's it's great that you say that because I was literally like 20 minutes into this back and forth on Slack about this and I had to stop and I said, all right, let me, let me just briefly reframe where I'm coming from because maybe that's where the issue is. I am coming from the belief that getting code into our customer's hand is the paramount importance and everything else is secondary. So the moment that a PR is done what I'm trying to do is decrease the lag time between PR approval and deployment. And I'm oh. like, if, if we're not all on the same page about that as the goal, then none of the rest of this conversation even makes any sense. And I think maybe that was part of the disconnect that I was having with the other engineers. So, so does it only require one reviewer? Is that like one reviewer and it's good to go? Because other yeah, places I've worked, it's like two reviewers and a lead have to sign off on the code before it's done. So if three people are pinging me to tell me they've completed a PR on my code. I would get angry. <laughs> yeah, we only have a one a one reviewer policy. Okay. And then Tim, Tim, I believe his situation gets even more complicated. Where I think <laughs> he said the person who writes the code isn't even the one who's allowed to deploy it. Right? Like, doesn't have to be a different That's person altogether. Yeah, yeah, true. For PCI, we yeah. have to have the person who writes the code has to be different from the person who deploys the code. It has mm -hmm. to be different from the person who reviews the code. Yeah. So, so, so clearly, people. people are in different contexts, which I think that's fair. There's different rules and regulations around how how things go, but in our context, where it's one person does the review, and then the person who writes the code is ultimately the person who deploys the code. I I was just. I, I, I was flabbergasted <laughs> that I was getting I any pushback at all. It, it's going to be heavily dependent on what comes after merge, right? Deploy. So, well, <laughs> but the, the the question that I'm asking is, what does a deploy look like? Because if the deploy is, you know, it, it could be as simple as pressing merge merges the code, which triggers an auto build and deploy script which auto deploys the thing and that's it, it's done. And maybe you need to monitor, maybe you need to you know, make some database changes at the same time that you are deploying the code or whatever. But it, it, it entirely depends on what your deploy process is, right? If, if you have a very manual deploy process, you have to go prepare some archive and SFTP it up to the server and <laughs> whatever. Is there anything wrong with that? Uh, then <laughs> no judgment. Uh, I judge you. Then, then there's that's very vastly different than press the merge button and the code will work its way out there, right? Which is where some of our environments are. And so our process is 
if a PR is going to deploy itself when it gets merged and doesn't need any babysitting through that process and like and it's not going to it doesn't need any any other inputs right if if the only thing it needs is for somebody to merge it and and it'll deploy itself then we tag it with a okay deploy okay to deploy tag which and like an okay to merge tag so that everybody knows like once it's reviewed you have the author's permission to press the button that will make it be deployed without telling them and then like it can merges be deployed. PR? interesting yeah yeah and so it, it takes it out of the author's hands no, you know, sometimes I'll end up being the one to deploy it anyway because I have to, you know, it'll be the next day and I still haven't gotten a review. And I'm like, hey guys, I'm still waiting on my review. And and I'll they'll go look at it and be like, okay, yeah, I, I just reviewed it and it's it's good to go. And then I'll press the button because I'm, you know, been standing there waiting for them. But I think taking people out of the loop can be beneficial. Cause like yeah, and it and it could work well, to the same goal that you're talking about, you know, reducing time from PR review to code running for users. I mean, if you have the infrastructure in place to do that, I think that's a very interesting conversation to have. We don't have that. We we still have a manual step. It, it, you have to kick it off. And then once you kick it off, it's fairly automated. After that, there's kind of a, a go, mm-hmm. no go moment that someone has to agree to. <laughs> so everyone's talking about all the different kinds of integrations that they have or that we could have. And, and the point that I made was that all of that is great for you as the person who wrote the code and has created the pull request. The person who's reviewing the code can't assume that you have any of that in place because what happens if I'm doing a review for Carol and she's got 18 different integrations that alert her on her phone and her desktop and her tablet. But like, I don't know that. And then I, and then maybe she's like, oh, you don't have to tell me. I just get those automatic. And then I do a review for Adam and I assume he has the same thing, but he doesn't. And he comes back and he's like, hey, when are you going to get that PR done? And I'm like, oh, dude, I'm sorry. I did it two hours ago. I didn't realize you didn't have, you know. Well, that's on me because I didn't go look first. No, but why? That's what I'm saying. Okay, so so here's here's a pet peeve when I'm watching a movie. And I think I'm, I trust that a lot of people can relate to this. And maybe they can't, but I'm trusting there. In movies, oftentimes when people are having a phone conversation, when the phone conversation ends, they just hang up. There's no like goodbye. There's no catch you later. It was great to talk to you. I'll talk to you tomorrow. It's like someone finishes a thought and then they just no, you hang, hang up, up first. Right. And you're like, whoa, that's not how people work in real no, life. It's, it's, it's like, okay. Right, yeah, yeah. Good. Good talking to you. All right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. You too. All right. All right. Good. Yeah. Hey, uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, but sure, that's, give me, okay. All right. Yeah, talk to you later. All right. Okay. Okay. All right. All right. So Bye. I feel Click. like doing a PR and then not telling the person that you're done is, is the code equivalent of that. I just finished my thought and now I'm hanging up the call because you know what, when I stop talking to you and then you're like, Carol, Carol, you're there. Like, Oh, you should just know that the conversation is over at that point. But like, that's weird. Mm. So Ben just called me not human because I literally <laughs> end every call with okay bye and I click end but and if we weren't done goodbye. then at least you're saying goodbye. I'm like, okay bye click and Steve will call me back He's like oh there was one more thing or you know my mom usually is the one that calls me back I'm like I thought we were done I said bye that was the cue where this conversation's over I'm on to the next thing yeah this rebel session so, has ended <laughs> I, I I I think that. There's a, a, an element of truth to whoever it was that said it's a, a tooling problem because 
GitHub is already sending alerts. I think the problem is that they're sending the alerts via email. Unless you go into your, by default, they send you an alert via email and but you like, can go into your settings and turn it off. Emails these and days. that's the problem. Not you. And that's, and that's the problem. I, I, hey, listen, I am right there with you. I check my work email tops like three times a day, unless I'm specifically working on something that requires me to get emails from people. Like I've been doing these compliance projects lately that require talking to outside vendors and stuff. And, uh, you know, I'm like, uh, some there are times when I'm like, okay, I need to go send four emails and then I need to keep checking and wait for the for replies to my four emails. If it's not one of those moments, if it's not one of those days, I check first thing in the morning, I check when I get back from lunch and I check at the end of the day. And that is pretty much the only time I'm going to check my email. But see, if I didn't, if I wasn't checking my emails, I would have push notifications set up in Slack. Like I would have an integration in that yeah. says, hey, my PR has been approved. Yeah, we have them in Teams, mm-hmm. our continuous integration. I want the least amount of communication possible. So I don't want people <laughs> telling me. And I get some people want it, but when I'm ready, I'll go look. I'll be like, okay, twice a day at 10 a.m. and 3 p.m. I'm going to check every day to make sure that if anything's approved, I get it merged. And if it's not been done, I'll handle it then. See, but again, I think, to be fair, you had a different context in that you were not deploying immediately when your code was done because that like wasn't the process, right? Like, didn't you deploy like every two weeks or something? No, no, no. We deployed twice a day. We were deploying continuously. So when it was approved, it was like go out, but it was too noisy and too much of a distraction on everyone. So we, at my previous job, had set up 10 a.m. and 3 p.m. releases. So, okay. So I don't, I don't want to belabor this. So the other, the other point of pushback, which I was flabbergasted by, and again, it's all subjective. Apparently I'm on a team now that just spun up a new JIRA board and the JIRA board was created with a to do in progress and done column. So just three columns. Kanban. Yeah. Yeah. And, and we've been using it for the week and I came in today and I was like, Hey, I just, it's been challenging for me to not have a column that represents some sort of a blocked status. Like I've done the work and maybe it's waiting for a PR review or it's waiting. I need to discuss it with someone else. So I, I don't want to move it back to to do because it's already being worked on. I'm just not, it's not one of my focuses right now. And so I, like I said, we should have either a blocked or a, or a ready for review column, something like that. And again, I was like, oh, everyone's just going to, you know, lift me on their shoulders and cheer for how great an idea this was. And like, like don't rock the boat, <laughs> newbie founder. And literally, like, everyone on the call was like, mm, that doesn't make any sense. Like, why not just leave it in the to-do column if it's blocked? I'm like, or in the in-progress column if it's blocked. I'm like, because I got seven other tickets that are currently in progress. And, and like, it's... But, but, but are they assigned to you? Do you assign it to another person? Well, I usually leave them assigned to me. Usually they stay assigned to the engineer. So I love the idea of a blocked swim lane because it lets everyone ahead of you know what's happening. So like when the, like your scrum master or your P, like your PM come in and look at it, they can go, okay, Ben has four things in work. These are truly things he's working on. However, he's held on these other three because he started working, but you guys didn't update a spec or we need something else. Like it gives them a very clear view of what is blocking you from working so they know what to go look at. They don't have to go through everything that's in progress to find what you're blocked on. This gives someone Mm. else the view to go, hey, work on this because Ben needs it. He's stuck, right? So what's the rationale on not doing a block lane? Yeah, that's silly. 
Yeah, thank you. All right. I'm glad we're yeah, all on the I same page. I disagree. Always. He no disagrees. vote, Adam. I, I, what was the rationale? The rationale was like, not every ticket even can enter a block state. Like, it doesn't make sense for all work. And I was just like, all right, then just don't use that That's column a dumb in reason. that case. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And then one was like, I think people, the, one guy was saying that, well, if he puts stuff in blocked, he tends to forget to check up on it again. And, and I'm like, all right, well. That's like, that's, that's a you problem. Reason. Yeah. Like that's not a yeah. me problem. <laughs> right. I, I, I don't know. And it's well, to be fair, Ben, I wish there was a blocked column is, a, is to them. It's a you problem, not a them. Problem. <laughs> <laughs> you got to find out who, who can unblock you. Is that what you're saying? So anyway, that was my day. I just, it, it, every, every conversation that I thought was going to be 30 seconds of everyone high-fiving with me and my great ideas just like turned into me having to argue for what seemed to make sense. And it was just, it was, it was a bizarre day. I was like in bizarro world. Yeah. I, I've been there. Anyway, that's me. Adam, we find your equilibrium. We'll get there. All right. I, I'll try to make this fast. Cause this, could, my, my, my potluck topic here is could probably be its own episode, but I will try to, maybe we'll do a short version and maybe we can come back to it. Cause I've, I've had this little segment idea, like a, a occasional topic idea that we could come back to where we like take some jargony term or some, you know, algorithm or data structure or whatever that, that people have heard of, but maybe have been too intimidated to look into, to try and learn or whatever. And like, let's, let's, let's demystify these things. So one of the things that I've yeah, heard, let's get, let's get Max on the show. <laughs> well, one of the things that I've heard many times throughout my career and never really knew what it was. And, and finally, I was just like, well, I, I can Google it and I can just go learn what it is real quick. And, and at least then I will know, right? So it's a bloom filter, right? You, you may or may not have heard of a bloom filter, B-L-O-O-M, in your programming travels. If you're like me, you've heard it and you were always like, oh, that sounds complicated. I bet you're smart. <laughs> and then you just <laughs> went about your day, right? So I, I wanted to learn and, and I'm going to share with you what I've learned. I don't at all claim to be an expert on this topic, but I, I think that once you understand at the level that I understand that you'll be like, oh, okay, that, that sounds like it could be very useful in certain niche cases. So a bloom filter, you have to understand what a hash table is. And I did have the luxury and the, the benefit of going to college for computer science. So this is something that we covered in a significant amount of depth there. If you're not familiar with a hash table, it's basically think of like a, an object, a structure in CFML or a, a, an object in JavaScript where you know you get it's like a key value pair, right? You've got a, a mm -hmm. key name and some value that you can stick in there. And a hash table is like that. And you've got a, a predetermined hashing algorithm where you take whatever the input is and you run it through your algorithm and it gives you a key name back, right? And so, for example, you could say MD5 is the algorithm for hashing, which takes the input and gives you your key name, right? And so you, you take whatever the input is, could be a whole book, it could be a phone number, you know, whatever, and, and you run it through your algorithm and it spits out the, the key name for your, for your hash table and you store the value at that location in the hash table, right? So it could be numeric, right? You could have an array of, of items and you could just say, my array is only ever going to hold, you know, one through a hundred and your hash, hash algorithm somehow based on the input returns a number one through a hundred, right? And that's your hash table and it goes into that position. The problem with hash tables is that you can have collisions. And so you have to have a collision management 
not philosophy. I don't know some word policy. I don't know resistant algorithm. Uh, yeah, whatever. You have to you have to know what you're going to do in the case of a collision so that Post you can resolution. Say, yeah, there you go. Yeah, uh, nice. so so that okay. So if you're doing the array of one to a hundred and and the first thing goes into fifty and then the second thing goes into fifty one and then what happens if the, the third thing goes into fifty? Right? Is it always like minus one? And then so if you it, what if there's already something at minus one? Then you go to minus one again or you know whatever whatever that policy is you you follow that well okay so that's a hash table right it's just it's a basically it's a way of kind of indexing data in a way right so you're taking given the the input i know where to find it in the hash table a bloom filter is a hash table where you intentionally could have collisions and the purpose of it is to be able to tell if something is not in the hash table Right, so you you maybe you scan an entire data set, and then you then you want to be able to ask the question: Is this piece of data somewhere in the data set? And what a Bloom filter can tell you is one of two things: either I can guarantee you it was not in the data set, or it might have been in the data set. It can't give you a, a for sure positive, but it can definitely give you a for sure negative. And it does that because the collision resolution strategy is ignore it. Right. So if, if three things end up in position 50 in your array, then okay, something landed in position 50. So if the item that you are checking would land in position 50, is position 50 empty or does it have something in it? If it's got something in it, then maybe it was the object you were looking for. But if that position is empty, then it definitely was not in the so data false set. False positives are possible. Correct. But false negatives are not. Correct. And there's, you know, there's different variations on this thing, but. So do you, ahead, is, is the, it, it seems like there's some sort of a trade-off or calculation that you can do where you say, I want to have, here, like, here's the chance of having a false negative, no. False positive. A, false positive versus how many hashes I actually have to store. And if I can make yes. like a concrete example. Let's say I'm lining people up and I'm lining them up by height and I can only see who's at the front of the line. So, or I should say, let's say I'm lining people up and I can only see who's on the front of the line. And in one approach, I say, I want to line people up by inches. So let's like, I have five, like everyone who's five feet tall is in this line. Everyone who's five foot one is in this line. Everyone who's five foot two is in this line. And then I could say, you know, is Joe here? Joe's five, nine. Oh, well, there's no one in the five nine line yet. So Joe's mm-hmm. clearly not in this group. But I have a lot of lines now where if, as yeah. if I like did it by hair color and I only have like four hair colors and Joe comes in mm-hmm. and Joe's blonde and there's no one in the blonde line. Well, Joe's not here, but it's also like my chance of having conflicting hash values. Like maybe yeah. there's much so, more likely to have a blonde person, even though I only have four lines. Sorry. I'm, you are. Yeah, you're very right. I want to point out one minor difference in that instead of a line, it's just the first person that lands, the first person that comes in that's 5'9", the first person that comes in that is blonde, has to stand there and represent that line. Everybody right, else right. that's blonde or 5'9", gets to go sit down right, because 5'9 right, right, right. is represented. Yeah, that, that's what I was trying to say with like, and, you can only see the first person. Line. Yeah, and, and so, and that's, that is one of the reasons that a bloom filter exists is because what you're doing is you are trading memory for speed. And for, and for, I'm sorry, no, it is, it is a fast algorithm sort of regardless, but what you're trading is memory for, for false positive rate, yeah, yeah. right? So if you can make your data set wider, 
if you can add more slots to put stuff in and theoretically have an evenly distributed hashing algorithm, then then your false positive rate goes down, but at the cost of needing more memory to store your index of data. So it's a way of being able to trade, oh, I only have a certain amount of memory, but I, I can accept a certain amount of false positives too. And I, I mean, I did. So here's where I got kind of stuck. I was like, okay, I, I understand the basics of this. What, I, what wasn't immediately clear to me is like, where would this be useful? So I did go look on Wikipedia to just try and get like, okay, what are some practical examples of where you might use mm-hmm. this? You didn't just ask and, chat GPT. <laughs> I should have. I should have. Apparently fruit, fruit flies and Akamai. <laughs> okay. The CDN. Yeah. Nice. Well, that's okay. Perfect. So the, the example on Wikipedia that resonated with me the most was caching, cache filtering. And so like being able to, because the, the example that they give is most URLs are not hit frequently. If, you know, if ever more than once, right? Like, you know, whatever various resources on a page. One hit wonders. Right. And so how do you determine whether it needs to be in the cache or not? It's based on, I don't know, somehow they use bloom filters to to make that determination (laughs) and it's good for it. I I don't a hundred percent understand that, but that was the example that they gave. And I was like, okay, I kind of, I kind of understand why that would be necessary. But the, the, when I was on the Wikipedia page, I did happen to notice, where did it go? They had, okay. Yeah. So. Classic Bloom filters use 1.44 log base two of one over, I believe it's a sigma, bits of space per inserted key, where sigma is the false positive rate of the Bloom filter, right? So mm-hmm. the- Yeah, I understand. Did you yeah, say yeah, 1.2 yeah. or 1.3? It just yeah. sounded like Max was talking, right, Tim? <laughs> exactly, yeah. He's standing in my room. He's like, that's exactly what he said to me. I'm like, I uh-huh. tuned out. Good job, son. 1.44. <laughs> Basically, what it's saying is there's a-, a proportion, a ratio of the amount of memory that you use to the false positive rate that you can expect. Yeah, that, I mean, I'm looking at the Wikipedia page Me too, too. because I know, <laughs> I know nothing about this, but yeah, so that like I said, Akamai, it's like th- three quarters of their caching is like, it's a page that just hits once within their time frame and they, they don't bother caching it because... Why? They, yeah. Because they're, it says that, yeah, I don't... Well, no, I mean, like, filter. I mean, why would they cache it, right? If it's only exactly, being hit one percent right. of the time, like why yeah. even cash that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so like three quarters. So mm. yeah, this is way over my head, man. It's yeah. hurting my brain. Well, but now it is. Now you have a basic understanding of you know. I, I know it exists. There you go. Yeah. Uh, let's let's go there. Let's. I'll say that I don't have a basic understanding. You, and now I know, I know who to call if someone asks <laughs> me about it. Yeah, like, I'll I call have Max. a person for this now. Yeah. So I hope that this can be sort of a regular segment for us where we just uh, yeah. like take, take some sort of data structure algorithm, something interesting, and demystify it for the other people on and that. listening to the podcast. I mean, definitely, I, I will look this up because this does sound interesting. I'd imagine funny. a lot of key pair Mongo kind of things probably use this to, to deal with key pair structures. Mm-hmm. So they're fast. That's always it's always blown my mind how you know relational databases. I get how they're kind of fast because you have these keys and they're all kind of tied together. But you just have a bunch of key pair sets mm-hmm. in a file, and how's that fast? So yeah, th- this this seems like it might be part of that. All right. When you, when you when you said when you were introducing the topic and you said hash and then you said something to the effect of you know if you're in, Fusion, it's like a struct, and if you're in JavaScript, it's like an object. I, I always, I get a little thrown when I hear when I'm listening to a conversation, 
and they'll be saying things like, oh, it's just an object, such and such. And then they'll be talking, 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 and then someone will bring up something and the other person will say, oh, well, that's really more of a dictionary than an object. And I'm like, wait, what? Isn't that the exact same thing? And they'll be like, oh, that's an associative array. And I'm like, isn't that also the exact same thing? And it's, I, I think a lot of languages have a lot more nuance in the data structures, whereas every language that I've ever used, which is, you know, like Coefficient and JavaScript, <laughs> it, objects, like there's just like bags of data that are either with string keys or number keys. There's not like a real big difference mm -hmm. between how they work. An array or struct. Yeah. Okay. Well, I think that we've been running for quite a long time now, so we should wrap it up. Let's see. I had thrown as a joke reference to last week's episode, I had thrown in our after show tease section of our notes document here that Ben is going to tell us what he learned how to cook today. Nothing. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but apparently Carol's cooking too. 24 hour steak. Is that what yeah. I'm saying? Yeah. We'll have yeah, to find out what that hours. means. Mm -hmm. That sounds dry and leathery. It's never taken me that long to eat a steak. <laughs> Or to cook it. Anyway, we are going to go record our after show. But before we do that, I need to let you know that this episode of Working Code was brought to you by Common Sense. It's electric. I mean, it's subjective. And, wiggy, and, wiggy, wiggy. <laughs> good, somebody got it. <laughs> and the listeners like you, if you're enjoying the show and you want to make sure that we can keep putting more of whatever this is out into the universe, then you should consider supporting us on Patreon. Our patrons cover our recording and editing costs, and we couldn't do this every week without them. Special thanks to our top patrons, Monty and Giancarlo. You guys rock. If you would like to help us out, you can go to patreon.com slash workingcodepod. Your homework this week is to build something with a blue... No. Um, to, <laughs> <laughs> I am going to once again ask you to tell a friend about the show. Tell somebody that you work with. Give, do them the favor of introducing them mm, to this podcast. Gift. <laughs> give, them, give the gift of working code. And we would really appreciate that. That's going to do it for us this week. We'll catch you next week. And until then, remember, your heart matters. Even if you, like me, do not grok how bloom filters work. <laughs> oh, come on. It's not that hard. It's not that hard. You've been listening to Working Code with your hosts, Adam, Ben, Carol, and Tim. If you're enjoying the show, please feel free to rate, subscribe, and review on your preferred podcast listening platform. We really appreciate that effort. We'll catch you on the next episode of Working Code.